You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our current sponsors, uh, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. As you well know, if you've been following This is Oklahoma, they've been a huge part of this podcast. So this podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at Oklahoma HOF. Also, for the podcast, a new sponsor this year that's just come on board and super excited to announce RCB Bank. Since 1936, RCB Bank has offered progressive products and a friendly service. Come in today to find out more about their loan promotion on new used refinance cars, boats, campers, and ATVs. Visit RCB Bank to learn more. RCB Bank, that's my bank. With approved credit, restrictions apply. Now, let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode down at Bradford House in Oklahoma City. If you're watching the video on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, you'll know that this place is absolutely fabulous. You've probably had pictures here. You've probably come here for a coffee or a scone or something, or scone, as some people say. Um, <laughs> but my guest today is Jason Little and Sarah Kate Little, uh, who have built this incredible place or rebuilt this place and renovated it and it's just absolutely fabulous uh i guess i mean people drive past this thing if they're in oklahoma city and now it's becoming a a big tourist attraction which is great uh but before this stuff right take it all the way back where are you guys born and raised um born and raised here in oklahoma city and uh i was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, actually. My dad was a pilot in the Navy, so we moved around a lot. Yeah. But moved here from Maryland in uh, the 90s, right before I was going into junior high school. So Dad was at Tinka then? He was, yeah. They relocated his flight squadron from gotcha. Patuxent River, Maryland. So. And you didn't want to go the Top Gun route and fly planes? <laughs> I didn't. No, I had a lot of exposure as, <laughs> as a kid. So. Yeah, yeah. So you went to high, obviously you went to high school here and, and stayed here and went with the university? Yeah. I, I went to Oklahoma Christian School in Edmond and then U, uh, UCO, Central Oklahoma. Yeah, in yeah. Um, that's where we lived. And I, uh, it was easy to do and comfortable yeah. and could pop in, you, you know, home from time to time which was nice yeah mom can do your washing stuff like that they, they, <laughs> and feed they, you they, they, they stopped doing that uh long before i moved out yeah but um but no it was nice yeah sarah kate what about you um i went to deer creek and then went to ou uh-huh. um and then just stayed here yeah, yeah, yeah. at the time in 2011 um Almost everybody creative was leaving for bigger cities. Um, Oklahoma City wasn't um, really the creative mecca, (laughs) so to speak. Um, I mean, it's grown a lot, um, but in 2011, for me, you know, this is my home and my family's here and we're all very close. And I was excited about the possibility of being able to create something here. I knew the city really well and... um, had traveled quite a bit and saw things in other markets that I thought would be really wonderful here. And so yeah. I wanted to be a part of the creation. So that's the beauty stayed. of being in the middle of the country, isn't it? There's like yeah. so many restaurant people that I know or fashion or anything, they see stuff come from the coast and like, it's going to be here. But we just, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you travel and keep an eye on it, mm-hmm. it'll eventually get here. And mm-hmm. thankfully, you know, we're at the, we're the best spot for it, right? Because you can 
you know, bring something in and think, well, mm -hmm. as long as the timing is right, and you're not too soon, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll succeed. But so from a young age, then did, did you have like a creative eye and, and want to do design and creative stuff? Yes. I mean, I wasn't sure specifically what it would be. Um, I come from a family of physicians, um, and my siblings are all, um, have gone that direction. They're all very, um, technical and I mean, just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was always the one, um, collecting things and interested in ceramics and taking art classes after school. And that's really where I thrived and what I loved. And my family just really encouraged me to pursue that in whatever way yeah. it happened. Um, so I feel lucky in that respect that um, everyone kind of knew and encouraged that that would kind of be my path. Got you. Uh, so you went to OU to do the degree in creative stuff and... Um, kind of well, I, um, I thought I would go to design school after getting a business degree. Um, so I was business for two years at OU and was sketching, um, on the side of my papers and my 500 person econ class, um, second year in and just had this epiphany of like, I'm not doing this for one more day. <laughs> um, so I'm sitting in the first row. I pack up my stuff and just march out of class, smiling at everyone as if they <laughs> should know. I just made this like really grand decision yeah. um, and called my parents and said, you know, I'm switching and I'm going to do interior design now. Um, and they said, what took you so long? So uh, it, uh, it was a long, uh, few years yeah. at OU. I mean, it, it was six years at that point by the time I graduated, but it was well worth it. Definitely. Did you feel that when you went to do like business first, did you feel like it was like necessary, like kind of family wanted you to do business or did, or was it like just, no, I think this is a smart thing to do. And, um, I thought it was a smart thing to do. I mean, I always thought that I would want to do my own thing. And so, um, I think I had the creative, um, you know, bug, but there are a lot of really creative people that are unable to run a business, right? right? And yeah. so for me, I was sensitive to that and wanted to be able to do both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm sure it was a relief then when, when parents are like, oh, what took you so long? Like, yeah. Go do you and, and kind of chase your dreams. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was great. I mean, late hours spent in the architecture college, and but it was rewarding work. Mm. And I think that's something that that we found here as well. And I mean, in my, I still do design work, um, Sarah Kate studios and, um, it's, you know, long hours and we're working around other people's schedules and juggling, you know, all sorts of things, but the work is so fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. So. Jason, what about you? What do you go to school for? Um, I have degrees in international trade and in finance, mm -hmm. um, with a real estate minor, I guess. But I think I declared that major pretty early. I never changed my major. I think I declared it my freshman year. Yeah. Um, but had through college sort of worked full time or nearly full time uh, in retail and in sales at Alton's men's clothing store in Edmond, mm -hmm. close to the campus. And then um, also worked my last year of school at SJ Haggard in Nichols Hills Plaza. So. I, um, I guess even going back to like second, third, fourth grade, 
was always the top salesperson for the class fundraiser. Yeah. You know, if it was magazine subscriptions or candy bars or whatever. And um, just kind of always, and, and even my parents would say when I was little, I was like a little like kind of peacemaker and negotiator. And so always like to find middle ground with people. And um, so when I got exposed to retail sales, particularly at a high level, you know, when I'm 17 or 18, a thousand dollar suit, I mean, still is a, a lot of money, but yeah. I mean, at that time, the t- type of people you're selling those to are pretty particular, right? Like it's got to, right. you have to have some product knowledge. It has to end up fitting when they walk out of the store. Um, and the type of people who have the budget to, to spend that kind of money on dress clothing are salespeople and executives. And so, um, I, developed good relationships, you know, with, with the customers there and was always kind of curious about what everybody did. And so when customers would have an appointment or they'd leave, I would always go ask the owners, okay, tell me about this person and would want the whole rundown about, well, how'd they get to where they're at? And, you know, what line of work are they in? And a lot of their relationships with the owners of those stores went back decades in some cases. So, um, it seemed like, you know, I think my thought process was at the time, like, I know I'm some I'm at some basic level, you know, uh, maybe like a skosh innately. Yeah. Um, a persuasive salesperson, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. maybe I should like focus on this. And if I can sell a thousand dollar suit, then what other products or services are out there that cost more? And how right. can, you know, how does that scale up over a career? And uh, the customers I had who seemed to like keep the schedules that like afforded them some flexibility and allowed them to travel, um, you know, for work and for pleasure, you know, they weren't the doctors and the attorneys cause it's all about hours, right. you know, for those people, it's kind of like, okay, the people who are really achieving at a high level are getting a lot out of, you know, in some cases, not a lot of time invested mm-hmm. in what they're doing. So, um, one of my customers was a, a commercial general contractor and I think it was my summer scope probably going into my senior year i decided i was going to become a real estate investor and um ended up buying a house on 18th street and Mesta park i would have been uh not i don't know 19 great decision yeah (laughs) right yeah and uh i wanted to kind of get in and fix it up and this is probably like not before the existence of hgtv Mm. but kind of before that big you know, housing. before you had to pay five times extra because every yeah. person, person was like, I'm going to be a real estate investor and exactly. flip houses now. And it's easy. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and, and it was actually like the easiest yeah. like deal I ever bought because the guy was, had been trying to renovate it himself for like seven years and was desperate to get rid of it. Yeah. So in fact that he, he carried a note for a hundred percent of the purchase price. And so, yeah, the, you know, we put the money in, um, this customer of mine who's in construction. I managed the project. He put the money in because I, you know, 19 didn't, yeah, have, any, didn't right? have any, yeah. and, uh, and then we split the profits and I was like, this seems like a good model, you know? And so, um, we ended up building a, a handful of single family homes together and mm-hmm. doing some other things. And then another one of my customers was a commercial real estate broker. It's like, man, this guy comes in at like two in the afternoon. Chilling. <laughs> yeah. He's like, done for the day. Wants to yeah. talk. Not done for the day, but like definitely yeah, in charge time. of, definitely yeah. in charge of his own schedule. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, and that's cool, and goes on nice vacations, and if I could, you know, I was getting exposed to residential, I wonder what that looks like for commercial, and how do you do 
how you how are you involved in commercial real estate and sales? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that's a whole industry, you know. And yeah. so my senior year, I uh, interned with him, and then um, as we were finishing the last few of our construction projects, this gentleman and another guy were opening an office for a Southern California-based firm, and I was the first hire and became a commercial real estate investment sales broker at that yeah. point. And so that's kind of how my career progressed was, you know, college student retail sales into uh, construction and real estate mm-hmm. uh, investment brokerage. Now, I guess, development on a small scale. But yeah, yeah. I think I declared that international trade major because I was so used to, you know, moving around a lot. When we moved here, I mentioned my dad being in the Navy. It was our sixth move in seven years. Yeah. And so, um, and I don't think my little brother had lived more than one place for more than a year at any one time. Uh, and so I just always thought that was neat. Mm-hmm. And um, the world is a big place and kind of got the travel bug in college right. on a trip to San Francisco. First time I'd ever been to California. And I thought, I'm going to, you know, just be traveling all around the world, interacting with different cultures and learning to do business. And it turns out I never left, uh, you know, <laughs> what became my hometown. Yeah. But um, yeah. um I'm fully equipped to become an international businessman when the, oh, <laughs> when, yeah. when, when the opportunity arises. Right, definitely. So do you think, like, because you moved around a lot, do you think, because sales is like, obviously, you, you know, people work very hard at it, but it takes, like, natural ability as well. Do you think because you moved around a lot and you always had to make new friends, you naturally made it, like, it just came comfortable to you and it was natural that, like, you would always, you just found sales to be, I guess, quote, easy? I think it probably had something to do with it. But if you look at my brother, for instance, you know, it's just the two of us were a family of four Mm -hmm. and uh, we're wired really differently. And, and he actually, when you sort of get to him is very personable, but I can't imagine him going out and like calling on someone, you know, just sort of out of the blue, but he moved around just as much as I did. Um, yeah. His experience was a little different because I was four years older, so I was probably more in my formative years mm-hmm. when we were doing that. But um, I mean, in my business, I I know people who are highly productive salespeople that only have talent yeah. and, and have no systems and processes um, and don't ever want to develop them. Who are you know highly successful, and then I know people who you really have to struggle to get, you know, two words out of them and edgewise and they are highly productive because they only focus on process and systems and yeah. are disciplined to put out follow up until they tell them the person like passes out or dies. Right. That's like, you know, sales, right. Sales quotes and stuff. So like. it, it really, um, is a wide spectrum of people who I think are successful in sales, but at the core of it, like once you, once it's time to communicate a message to that customer or client, mm-hmm. that's really where all the value is. Right. And some people can just do that because they can read the room and they're, they're, they have great interpersonal people yeah, skills. Yeah. Other people are just so highly trained that they can do it. But either way, you've got when the time comes when someone wants to say yes, whether you're really personable or not, you need to be able. You need to be able to identify that moment and yeah. be prepared in what you're going to say. Right, and take that opportunity. And like, okay, I cro- you know, you've clearly crossed the line. You've made the decision up. Now it's just my job to guide you to signing or saying yes or picking out the intricate details. Yeah, which is uh, that's really cool because like 
you don't strike me as someone like typical brash American human being that people back home would think of an American uh, like very loud and walks in and owns a room has got so much confidence right but clearly you're very good at what you do otherwise we wouldn't be sat in this building today <laughs> right and the other projects that you've done as well um, which is really cool to see that and, and to go from you know international stuff to just sales and I think now if people now are soft right quote soft compared to what they were 10-15 years ago and if if you've got salespeople coming out now and you say, hey, here's 500 phone numbers you've got to call this week, they might cry with the thought of rejection. Whereas seems like back in the day, people were a bit more harder and you're like, that's just normal, get on with it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see like if you were dropped in the world now with those skills that you were learning back then, like how much, if you would do significantly better or what, like they're just... I don't know. It'd be interesting yeah, to see that, right? Hard to say. Well, and, and you know, again, all those things are necessary. Right. Like day one, you know, you're not just going to walk into an environment where your phone's ringing off the mm. hook. A lot of it's just is kind of what's the saying? One of my uh, career coaches at one point had a saying that it's not about who you know, it's who knows you. Yeah. And that's totally true. I mean, if somebody wakes up one day and says, you know, I could really use, I need an introduction. I'm going here. I you know, whatever, you want to be the first person they think of. Yeah. Because the odds that the salesperson tracks that person down on just the right day are pretty yeah, slim, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so building presence is a lot of it. And like you can do that through systems and processes or do it just through being a big personality. But right. um, I think it was an advantage for me getting started in my career because I was, I finished high school, graduated high school at uh, 16 and then college at 20. And so, you know, I couldn't even buy alcohol, right. you know, as a college graduate yeah. if I wanted to take someone out, you know, or whatever. And so I would like to think I still am, but definitely at the time was ba- pretty baby faced. And, <laughs> and so like you're talking, it's no longer thousand dollar suits. It's right. multi-million dollar, you know, investments. And so product knowledge for me was just everything because mm-hmm. with no experience and, you know, with no gray hair, um, or any credibility, really. The only way you build that is really knowing what you're talking about. Yeah, and that's yeah. all I was sort of left to do. And so I just sort of had to own it. And uh, had all sorts of obstacles to come to overcome from a credibility standpoint in those yeah, meetings. Yeah. And had someone senior, you know, fortunately, that I was partnered with who could be the gray hair at the table and kind of vouch for me, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. But um, the only like bigger disadvantage to being like fresh faced and young in an industry like that is being fresh faced, young and not knowing what, and the not knowing you're what talking you're doing about. coming in like I am new in town, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, strolling exactly. in like you're on the world. So it kind of required a little bit of a quiet confidence and yeah, a real yeah. like subject matter command. Yeah. Uh, I guess fast forward a little bit. How'd you guys meet? Jason was a client. Do you tell two different stories to this? <laughs> no, Jason was a client, um, and we had a mutual friend who had introduced us. Jason had just bought a condo a few blocks from here, actually, um, and we just ran into each other one night, and he asked, you know, hey, I need some furniture. Will you help? Um, so I went over and looked at it, and I actually had been in love with that building for years. It mm-hmm. sat dilapidated for how long? I mean, 15 years or Long, something, longer, 20 yeah. years? It had a car-sized hole in the roof, yeah. <laughs> and the basement was full of water because it had just, over the years, taken on that much. Yeah. 
previous owner and just let it sit. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's more to the story, but obviously I love a sad building. Um, and so I was just so excited and said, yes, absolutely. So we worked together for about a year. Um, we were both seeing other people and, um, you know, going on about our lives, strictly professional. Mm -hmm. I think by the end of the project, we had started to become really, really good friends. Um, I mean, he was one of my best friends at this point. Mm -hmm. And project was finished and maybe two months later we started dating um yeah i don't know what the date on the finish yeah. was but i moved in in october yeah maybe it was done by december yeah, yeah, yeah. i guess it had been right right around the holidays yeah so. our first um discussion about dating was on yeah february 1st yeah 2013 yeah. We kept it a secret from our friends for like a month. I'm sure it was a Just to say, oh, no, yeah. I, I mean, your friends didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. You come home and you're like, guess we what were, I'm today? Yeah. We were just such good friends. It was like, if this isn't going to work, we want to be able to maintain this and right. it not get awkward. So we were like, let's see how it goes for a few weeks. And um, yeah, the rest is history. So, That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so during this point, I guess you would graduate college and you're going into your own Circuit mm -hmm. Studios design yes. stuff. You have clients and you're doing interior design stuff, yes. right? I mean, at that point, I um, was just being scrappy. Mm -hmm. I mean, being a freelancer in Oklahoma City at that time, being young, um, I said yes mm -hmm. to pretty much anything, Um just trying to make a living and just get a lot of experience, build yeah. my portfolio. Um, so I did things, you know, from finding a piece of furniture to styling someone's home for a party to doing, you mm -hmm. know, a remodel. Um, and so at that point, yeah, I was very much still in the building phase of my business. I had a friend who helped me occasionally, but I was the only employee. Mm -hmm. Um, of Sarah Kate Studios and um, it was a, a sweet time to look back at um, yeah so I guess perfect for you to just like you know you're doing building projects and then your interior design it's like perfect mix mm -hmm. uh, so tell us about like when this building comes on the market and you're just like like did you buy it like way in advance and then wait and wait and wait to do the build out or like how, how does that come about how does that happen um, well, when we bought the building, it was our first year of marriage, right? But leading up to that, we had been yeah. kind of having discussions really through our through the time we were dating and engaged about kind of to your point, you know, okay, you have a real estate background and you have a design background. Those two things like overlap quite a bit. Um, what kind of life are we going to have? Or, you know, are we how do we? How are we going to work? Are we going to have our own careers? Are we going to work together? Um, what does all that look like? And so as those discussions, you know, progressed, it's kind of like, no, we really should keep our own businesses and yeah. keep our work lives. And at least in terms of how we earn our income, you know, and earn a living, we should continue to nurture these businesses and have our own, you know, sense of ownership over the areas that are of our life that we're uh -huh. that we have expertise in but also i mean two people and two in the in those two lines of work 
I mean, by definition, collaborate. And so we should think about maybe how we want to do that, not necessarily as a full-time way to earn a living, but as a way to invest, you know, in the future and for our family. And another part of it was, you know, it for her in particular, it's it's satisfying and fulfilling to complete projects and execute great design and see the finished product when it's, but it's also always for someone else. And you can still get a lot of uh, fulfillment out of that. I, I would, you know, I'm speaking for you. But, but you wish that you're like, <laughs> oh, I wish I could move into this spot instead but, of doing but it for someone else. Also, it's kind of like, well, I mean, at, at some level, like in, in my line of work, whether it's advisory services or mm-hmm. her line of work with design, you, at the base layer of it, you're creating value. And at some point in your career, you should be transitioning into mm-hmm. creating value for yourself. Um, maybe not exclusively, but kind of working towards that as the goal, if that's your skill set. Yeah. And so that was really a discussion is how do we create value for ourselves? And um, residential and hospitality kind of became two kind of sectors in the space that we were interested in and focused on that would be easy um, to plan a, a, you know, develop business plans for, as opposed mm-hmm. to going out and like both of us learning about industrial warehouses, for example. Yeah, you know, I'm super not excited glam- about that. Super glamorous way of that, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, which I love that product type, but right. it, that wasn't going to be how we. Oh, you know, I mean, like if you, if you, you want to bring Amazon here, then you're <laughs> cashing in right now, aren't you? So, so um, uh, travel was always a passion of mine. Sarah had studied abroad mm-hmm. uh, and had traveled um, fairly extensively as well. And so when we were together, that's that was our recreational lives were spent mm-hmm. travel planning or traveling. And that's just the thing, um, that area of our lives that we both were kind of had really a lot of shared yeah, passion yeah. Um, in. And so when you travel a lot, I mean, you're... Co- you know, constantly exposed to hospitality. I mean, by, by okay. definition. And so, um, yeah, places where people live, you know, where they like choose to live, but also the places they choose to travel and the places they choose, uh, and the ways they choose to spend their time was kind of something we could engage with really mm-hmm. easily. And so we had been, um, talking about both, yeah, residential projects and hospitality, but the hospitality little, harder to do because the projects that we really admired and that felt like they were truly something special mm-hmm. to the point of being difficult to copy were, uh, yeah, just difficult things to identify and bring to fruition. If you want to go build something out in a green field, I mean, you just turn in plans with an application fee and yeah. get your permit and off you go. Um, the projects that we were really drawn to were ones that were uh, almost uncopyable, just p- either because of where they were located or how it was zoned or um, just the, the barriers to entry to develop competitive properties would be very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And kind of to your earlier you know, question about uh, or comment about timing in the market, it's also, you know, can Oklahoma City it absorb yeah. a boutique hotel? Is anybody going to care? You know, is it are we such a price-driven market that design gets little mm-hmm. to no value, but also like design at what level, you right. know, because what someone's opinion of good design is could be something we don't identify mm-hmm. with at all. Mm-hmm. And so it was, 
because Oklahoma is such a new state and we historically haven't done a phenomenal job at pre- preserving yeah. historic architecture. And by preserving, I just mean not tearing not it down. Not tearing it down, <laughs> yeah. right. like they did in Oklahoma City. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And so there's not, there's just, as opposed to many U.S. cities, mm. not by European standards, but by American standards that have huge stock of historically significant yeah. buildings and um, entire you know districts that may not even be designated as such, but just continue to exist because of the quality of that kind of built environment. Oklahoma City doesn't really have that. And so mm-hmm. it's not like there was one of these on every corner and we just had to pick the right one. Um, it was a challenge to kind of try to ad- identify. But what's funny about that, as much time as we spent talking about buildings that could be a fit and what the format looked like and how many rooms and does it involve food and beverage, the building we ended up buying to do this project happened to be, you know, three blocks from, you know, where I was living. And, and yeah. we hadn't really targeted it in that way. Um, probably would have happened eventually, but the, it was December and the sign because it was on the way home, you know, I, we would drive by it four yeah, times yeah. a day. And uh, the sign was going up in the yard, and I was like, she had just but been... You saw them putting yeah, the sign in the yeah. yard. Yeah, and she had been in the building, because uh, there was an art dealer who lived here and had his gallery. Okay. She had been in the building weeks before, like within, mm-hmm. within yeah, yeah. You know, fairly recent. So it was livable when you got it then? Uh, <laughs> well, he lives in it. One he of, lived in it. Yeah. Yes. It, it was occupied. Occupied yes. is a great word, yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, so yeah, yeah, had some had had been in the building. Sarah had been to an estate sale, I guess, here, mm-hmm. um, like around that time. I went the weekend after we had it under contract. Yeah, so I guess all that was happening yeah. about the same time. But yeah, sign was going up, and I was like, "Hey, that building on the corner, they finally put that up for sale because yeah. it hadn't traded since like the '60s." Yeah. 60s, 70s. The lady that bought it raised her family in here and then moved away and owned it for decades after that. But um, I called the broker, who was a friend, and hey, can we get in there to look at that? Yeah, sometime next week, because this was on a Friday. I was like, no. No, like now? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm outside? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, so we got in and looked at it, and Sarah, like she said, you know, loves a sad building, but like her goal is not just to find a sad building, but like the yeah. saddest <laughs> right. building and I don't 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 share in that passion yeah. equally um, like babe it's almost blowing oh. over I, I like, just need like the could. bottom quartile you know I don't need mm. the the bottom one percent yeah, you know, yeah, of, yeah. of condition but well and I thought for sure he was going to kill the idea I mean yeah. we walked in and the first unit that we saw because it was originally um, four units, four luxury apartment units. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one that we walked into was the previous owners, and everything was pink. The carpet, <laughs> the walls, the draperies, the sofas, tile. the countertops, the kitchen cabinet. I mean, every, absolutely everything. And I walked in and gasped. And I mean, seeing this place now, way. yeah, totally. Okay. But I mean, if you see this place now, obviously, yeah. I love pink. Yeah. I find it very exciting and it's eccentric. And the house just had a mood to it, right. which is the whole purpose of, you know, having an old building is yeah. that it, it's got a lot of ideally, character. ideally it has character and yeah. it has a story and it has, I mean, it, it is a character in, in the story that you're trying to create. Well, Cause like, so. yeah, like downtown, you know, warehouse conversions, 
those are those are great and those can be um interesting from a design standpoint but yeah you know at the core of every single one of those it's concrete floors and pillars you know and so it's just what do you do inside right. of that mm-hmm. and there's maybe a business operating there, but no one living in it, yeah. you know? And so, um, but to answer your question, that was December of 2015. Mm-hmm. We closed on it in July of 2016. Um, spent another nine months probably working through design and then everything in between, I mean, was obviously like conceptual design, yeah. construction feasibility, financial feasibility. We had to get it rezoned. Mm-hmm. What was it zoned at? Just R- R1, single family residential, even though there were five apartment units on right, site for this building. Yeah. So no matter what anyone did, it was going to have to be rezoned. Yeah. Um, which, you know, was, was not that a nightmare difficult process? in Oklahoma City. It wasn't but, that hard? Well, I mean, compared to some cities sure. where you could spend years right. you know, yeah, on, yeah. on zoning for something like this, um, it, it had its own set of challenges mm-hmm. and took some time. Sure. And, required pretty early and active engagement with the neighborhood and um, several layers of that. So, um, yeah, design and and, uh, development, I would say, was probably like a year and a half. We put it out to bid with our kind of like ideal set of of drawings, Mm -hmm. schedule of finishes and functionality, and it just obliterated the the budget. Um, And, uh, you know, I wish, I, w- I guess I wish we had an investor with bottomless pockets, but, you know, <laughs> unfortunately this, yeah. this, this project, you know, uh, in theory needs to pencil it. But so, if, you, if you're going point, all so. in, you are going all in and yes. we're going to do this. We're going to make it work, whatever the cost. Exactly. <laughs> but we also need to be, you know, a little savvy yeah. and, and scrappy and figure out ways to bring this in within budget. So we went back and spent probably another six months, I would say, mm-hmm. working through redesign Mm -hmm. and value engineering. I mean, I think our VE list was probably 80 line items, you know, of things where we were making decisions of things to do differently. And then put the project back out to bid again, that would have been January of 19. Mm -hmm. And then we started demo and site work, um, like first of April of 19. It was about a year long construction project. And we were, like she said, starting to plan move in of the furnishings and getting billing systems, yeah. technology systems up and running. And then COVID-19 hits and it's like, well, I guess we'll, uh, wait this one out, you know? <laughs> right. and, I, and I remember at the time, really kind of everyone talking about like, Oh, this is just, you know, just, it's another virus or it's like a swine yeah. flu or a SARS or something. It's serious. Early March or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like, People, people were still saying things like, well, just wait till summer because yeah. it'll get hot and the virus can't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The virus can't live in the heat. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Thinking to myself, like, then how is it spreading in right. the Philippines and Brazil? And so there obviously a huge amount of unknowns. Yeah. But e- even in early March or mid-March, we probably thought we would be open mid-summer. Yeah. And we just had to keep kind of keep kicking the can down the road. Yeah. So, so four year project, but (laughs) you know, a little of that was artificially, uh, delayed or or extended. But the other thing, I mean, too, is like, that is a long time and sounds like a long time. There's some intricacies and complexities that Mm -hmm. necessitated it, but also you're doing this out of our kitchen. You know, there's no office (laughs) there's, you know, with 
development staff, right. you know, that is yeah. working on the when you're still working things. at the time, I assume, right? You're still yes. doing your own projects at the same time, yes. and like this is like coming home and your side project, right? Yeah. Kind of side hustle, and it's yeah. like a huge deal. Yeah, <laughs> and had three children yeah. during yeah. that time too. So, I mean, it's been yeah. How old are the kids then? Yeah. Uh, three, two, and one. So you just. Let's knock them out. Let's get yeah. it done. Yeah. yeah, let's get the yeah. worst part over. Yeah. So I mean, if you can if you can do this project and have three kids, you can really do anything you want now, right? Like you've I kind of been so. through it. And go through, and through, go, go through COVID and everything. That's what we're that's what we're telling ourselves. Yeah. It's great to have on the resume. Anybody comes to you and is like, look, like we got plenty of experience dealing with well, stuff. Well, one day that will be true, but yeah. in the on the day to day in the moment, I mean, the last year obviously was just yeah, discouraging yeah, yeah. on a lot of levels, you know. Uh-huh. So. When you're like, you know, you mentioned you traveled abroad and you have all these things going on and these design ideas that are coming in and, and you're thinking of stuff mm-hmm. and then you see this building, where, like, I guess, have you drawn from? Is there anywhere specific that you've drawn from or did you just think, I like a little bit of this, this and this and we're going to make it work? Well, so conceptually, we loved the idea of if William Bradford, who originally built the building, Mm -hmm. if it had stayed in the family. Like, that was just a really intriguing idea to us, that it could be this multi-generational property that um, has been collected and curated and added to over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in my business and what I love, I mean, what we both love um, is largely vintage and antique pieces. Again, like some worn character, mm-hmm. a story, um, something that feels really unique and has a mood to it. Um, so I think Europe was the obvious mm-hmm. choice. Um, our inventory list of what we needed to stock the place was substantial. And shopping markets in the States, we, with as much as we needed, um, we were going to be priced out. Mm -hmm. It actually was less expensive for us to go abroad and have lots of choice um, and bring everything back. And so... In the States, your options are basically all catalog and custom, which in mm -hmm. and of itself is not cheap, but it looks like catalog furniture, even if it's custom built, if everything's the same, you know, it's clear that... it just yeah. all came on one truck from one vendor. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go, not even the antique, but even the higher quality of vintage pieces uh, to buy in the States, by the time they've got gotten mm-hmm. in inventory with a U.S. dealer, yeah. they've been marked up. They've been passed through right. four or five middlemen and been marked up every time. And I mean, Oklahoma City is you know, yeah. growing, but it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter that there's a original Palo Bufa, you know, armchair in the corner, it's still not going to get you $400, $500 a night. Yeah. And so how do we make this work on an Oklahoma City budget? Mm -hmm. You know, was honestly, that was probably the biggest challenge of the entire thing from start to finish Yeah, is how do we get the the feeling and convey the story, but also furnish it with original pieces that designers in the U.S. are copying, you Mm -hmm. know, to try to get affordable versions Mm of how do we do that and, you know and kind of obviously do a good job with construction and in a timely manner too right a, like if you've got this list and you're like hey I, I don't have to worry about my timeline I can pick this list mm-hmm, and slowly mm-hmm. make it but when you got a deadline mm-hmm. did you just like fly to Europe with a shopping list and think great let's do it we yeah. did that's literally what happened left yeah. the kids at home I mean we had an Excel well, we didn't spreadsheet have any, oh, okay. first time, yeah <laughs> no I was pregnant, pregnant I was pregnant time. with Edie um but no, we had a shopping list. We initially went to 
a big market, basically like the round top antique fair of France. Um, went with a shopping list. We're very excited, ready to go, ready to buy all of the things. And the first day, I think I was crying halfway <laughs> through the day because there just wasn't enough stuff. Yeah. Like we needed. But, and the stuff they had was too fine. As yes. Well, you know, yes. Which, it was. It wasn't cool. Yeah. It was. They were like museum pieces gotcha. that someone would put in a formal living room and say, "Nobody go in there." Yeah. Right. <laughs> and for us in a hotel, like, I mean, this stuff has. It can't be pristine, and yeah. it shouldn't be pristine. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be interesting and stylish, um, but not fine. Mm-hmm. So I but was fun- functional too. Functional. Yeah. And so I was freaking out, like, what are we going to do? We cannot go home empty-handed. And we had hired a company to do our freight. That was They were going to pick up everything for us, pack it, put it on a container, and get the container to Oklahoma City. So with the few things that we bought, they said, okay, you guys have got to go see Michelle. Yeah. And we both are like, who is Michelle? Is this Michelle? Michelle. Yeah. (laughs) Who who are you talking about? Who is this? Where do we need to go? And so. Because they're like, you guys, you don't, you told us you wanted antiques. What you want is not antiques. What you want is brocante, which is essentially well-worn, well-used antique things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, antique in the truest sense of the word, it means pristine condition, right? Yeah. Generally. Yeah. So at least the time you don't want something that, that was trading. aged but still usable, not like perfected. And if someone put their coffee on it and the table fell through, it's going to cost you a thousand dollars because you're never exactly. going to see that again. Yeah. Exactly. So, so we hopped how on was train. Michelle? Um, well, so they described him as dressing in completely monochrome outfits. Okay. So obviously, I'm intrigued. I'm like, as a designer. Yes, I'm like, like we're getting on a train. Guy. We have to see this man. Um, and so we went. Well, he dresses in monochrome outfits, typically pastels. <laughs> yeah. And buys Ruinart champagne by the palette. <laughs> we're like, wow, this. We got to make a trip to see this guy. Oh. Totally worth it. So he was in, yeah. we were in, uh, yeah, we were in. Avignon. They, I mean, of, we took the train from Yeah, Avignon. we were outside of mm-hmm. Avignon. And then they said, you know, but you're going to have to travel. He's in Lyon. So we said, oh, great. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We don't have an agenda except. How long were you, you there for? Had you not booked a return flight yet? We had a return flight, but it was 10, 10 days. So you came yeah. for 10, 10, 10, 10 days? 10 days to two weeks or okay. something yeah. like this. Which is, again, it's not a lot of time. No. When you fly in, you know, you basically mm-hmm. get two travel days of you, yeah. and then, you know, then they say, hey, you've got to go to Leon and see Michelle. Yeah. yeah. Go. Okay. We, we have a lot of hundreds of pieces to buy. Like, we got <laughs> we to gotta yeah. find them. So um, Michelle picks us up from the hotel. Um, we go to his family home. His dad was an antique dealer. He was born there. Yeah, he was born at that house. Um, family has since passed away, so it's just him there. And he's taken over this entire property. And when you pull up, I mean, the whole thing is fenced to the point that you can't see what's inside. And I walked through that gate, and there is just garden furniture stacked, piled high, everywhere. And I just turned and I hugged him. <laughs> well, Thank and, you so much. And I think you did start. Actually, I think you did shed a tear. Oh, yeah. I think I did. Because we had been. I think I did. We got a little frustrated early, yeah. early on, and 
Well, you're also pregnant at the time too. Exactly. Right? Yes. Like, that had nothing. Halfway, halfway around the world. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, I mean the anxiety of needing to find this stuff in mass and just finding someone who had a just, similar aesthetic and just yeah. got it and just got it. This and was his life, right? He yes. loved this stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so we walked in, and I mean, I could have taken everything that was in the house, and so he uh, he said. Um, one of his phrases is, make your own world. So he said, okay, make your own world. I'm going to go get coffee. You just wander around. And so we spent, I mean, the entire day piling stuff up from him. Um, and, I mean, I would say most of our favorite pieces came from him. Um, and we've been back to see him multiple times since. And well, we've, on return trips, stayed with him. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, had several home-cooked, you know, dinners yeah. in his home. He actually, yeah. uh, he and his partner came to see us. Oh, they've read, so, they, so yeah. they've been here. Yeah, his yeah. God, oh, that's one, great. Of his God, one of his godparents is in, based in New Orleans. Okay. And I think has a, is a dealer there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he had promised to go see them. And, you know, to someone coming this far, from continental yeah. Europe. Oklahoma's like to, not to, that far away. To us, away. it doesn't yeah. seem that far. But to right. them, like... They're thinking, well, if I'm going all that way, then, yeah. you know, New Orleans to Oklahoma City, that doesn't look that far. Yeah, it's one. It's connecting flights. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I mean, it's a nine-hour drive. Right. Mm-hmm. So, he, or, yeah, nine, ten hours. But he uh, went to visit there, and he said, all right, I want to come see you all. I want to see what Oklahoma City is all about. Like, Because <laughs> he, he just thought it was bizarre that we were even yeah. talking about doing this project in a place that he associates with cowboy hats and cattle pastures and oh, all yeah. this. So he's like, I'm coming to Oklahoma City. I mm-hmm. want to make a you know weekend of it. This is going to be great. I want to rent the I want to rent a car, but not just any car. I want the biggest, tallest pickup truck you can find. <laughs> Such a European <laughs> thing to do because I do the same thing. Yeah. In his monochrome outfit. Oh yeah, just like hey, give me the biggest lifted F250 you yeah. can find, and I'm driving it all With the his, way. You know, handlebar mustache. Yeah, and, uh, that he waxes and, and beret. Oh, it's and fantastic. Beret. So he was like, we we took him around town to kind of some of our favorite spots and. The op- uh, managers, operators, bartenders, and stuff are like, who is that guy? Like, <laughs> is he a friend of yours? Like, like is he an arms dealer? Is he, you know, we got all these questions about why we were with this really yeah. super eccentric, you know, French guy. But brilliant, yeah, become good friends. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so yeah, I guess you easily filled that container with and brought that container back. Well, that was yes. the first one. The first yeah. time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That was the first forty-foot container. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. the second trip was. Uh, centered around a fair, um, a, mar- a market, yeah, yeah, that happens a time or two a year in Parma, Italy. Yeah, and so we sort of built the trip around that. Spent some time in in Milan, and but bought quite a bit at that, at that fair, and then mm-hmm. also went back uh, across the mountains to Lyon. Did another. Mm-hmm. Kind of buying session, yeah, 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 and then sent back a second forty-foot container. Mm-hmm. And so. we bought in Paris a little bit too. Yeah, on that trip there was another fair there. And Normandy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, that's so. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Kind of from all over, but. Yeah. But I guess now, I mean, we were talking about this the other day, but it wasn't good timing on purpose. You mm-hmm. referenced timing earlier, but with what's happened with like supply chain logistics, COVID nineteen, oh, yeah. particularly uh, transoceanic shipping, you know the. I think that if we wanted to do that today, it probably would have been cost prohibitive because I, I think the, co- the cost to get a oh, 40-foot yeah. container across the ocean today is more like, I was seeing prices like 50,000, 60,000, you know, per. Yeah. And 
huge delays, obviously. Yeah. And Not to mention construction costs going through the roof now as well. well yeah. Somebody, a friend of mine mm-hmm. in the business said the other day, he's like, yeah, I mean, you guys, it, in all honesty, it was probably at least on the new construction portion mm-hmm. and then a lot of what went into this building. Minimum twenty percent, yeah. Uh, different, you know, increase in price, maybe closer to thirty, depending on right who what you're buying yeah. and when. But um, yeah, he was like, yeah. I mean, you guys have probably just by nature of increases in construction costs probably built twenty percent equity in this project. And I was like, that's yeah. a good theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's on paper. That's yeah, not exactly. in my bank account right now. <laughs> yeah, I was like, unfortunately, uh, yeah. You know, Lenders don't really care about that. <laughs> it's, Can I get a new appraisal on this place, please? Yeah, yeah. That'll solve yeah. everything, right? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So, so yeah, you, you know, you're doing the design out. And the, I guess the hotels around, the, the hotel, the rooms around the back, you built those in as well, right? Because mm-hmm. it was just a parking lot around back. And you like poured concrete and all backyard, that stuff, basically. right? Backyard with some gravel. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there was no structures back there. So was that just, hey, we need more rooms, we have this, that was originally in, in like the first design and hey, we got the room, let's throw this in or does that kind of come as a, hang on well, a second, we, we have this opportunity. we wanted to create more density, mm-hmm. I think, just for the feeling of the place and really love the idea of um, an intimate courtyard spanning the two um, just as a gathering place. Mm-hmm. In Oklahoma City, I feel like for restaurants, they're, I mean, the options for outdoor dining are few and far between. And that's something that we really, I mean, it's even more important now and in the last year, but um, then having the opportunity to do outdoor dining spaces where people could linger was really valuable. And so I think that was a part of the conversation too. I mean, I think you had ideas on how many rooms you wanted. but aesthetically and conceptually, it made a lot of sense as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> density and scale, you know, matters because, you know, in this case, it's a 36-room uh, property. But even if it was 100 rooms, you still yeah. just need one general manager, right? Yeah. And one digital content director. And mm-hmm. so as you have the ability to add scale but also maintain kind of the integral qualities mm-hmm. of why it feels a certain way or what the service model looks like, <clears throat> you want to try to maximize that you yeah, know, to yeah. the best you can. Um, so, yeah, some of it was financial and economic. Some of it was um, just th- like the design theory that projects that incorporate historic architecture with mm-hmm. new construction in a thoughtful way are just interesting. Um, and, yeah, some combination of both yeah, in yeah. between. But I think your, like, corporate, you know, career-long hotel yeah. owner, operator, developer, you know, looks at this and, you know, at some level, rightly so, yeah. and are just like, yeah, I wouldn't do that project because there's no scale to it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I need, you know, 50 rooms, 100 rooms maximum uh, for it to make any sense. And, you know, maybe at some level that's true depending on what the product is mm-hmm. and what you're trying to do. Um, some of the case studies that we and owners and operators we got to know uh, can make can make it work with 12 rooms. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so there's this, there's mm-hmm. lots of different ways to do it in that middle ground. Um, but we wanted the food and beverage program to be kind of front and center. We mm-hmm. wanted it to be a place where we have regulars coming in multiple times a week yeah. for French pastries or cocktail after work or mm-hmm. a glass of wine on the front 
front patio in that sort of front facing buzzy yeah yeah food and beverage operation kind of drives some of the hotel demand as well mm-hmm. and the people that are in there frequently become you know little brand ambassadors out in the public yeah and so um if it were more like a limited service hotel with just a vending machine basically yeah, yeah. you know prepackaged uh protein bars and mm-hmm. bottled water in the lobby uh we well, it couldn't just be a 36 room project right you know yeah and and you're right like it's you know people come here they hang out they have breakfast they have coffee you know like i said french pastries or they come after work and have a cocktail and hang out on the patio it's a great patio by the way um you know and just hang out and it's you're right they do become ambassadors you know because the design to your credit is very very instagrammable right that's now a thing sadly for people i say sadly I take a lot of pictures. Um, probably the, shouldn't say that, but uh, you know, it's. I'm sure that was a good thing going in, and 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 as a design perspective too, it's like knowing that okay, people are going to want to come here and hang out because the drink and the food are going to bring them here. But then they're going to want here, and they're going to want to take more pictures and more pictures. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, I think probably mm-hmm. the reach that those pictures have had, mm-hmm. right, has been like the best marketing strategy for mm-hmm. you guys anyway, because you don't have to. You know, you have people doing your work for you it's great isn't Mm -hmm. it you know it's like back to your point earlier about being the referral person right you want to be known as the person that someone wants to call on you know if people want senior shoots or photos or magazine shoots they come and like oh where can i come to in oklahoma city Mm -hmm. you guys are now like pretty much at the top of that list Mm -hmm. because of the different colors and you can do so many different shoots Mm -hmm. in one location right Mm -hmm. it doesn't all look the same Mm -hmm. which i mean I love. I don't have the eye for it, like mm-hmm. what you do, but I, I, mean, I definitely appreciate mm-hmm. it. Well, and I mean, going back to the why did we do this in the first place, I mean, from a design standpoint, it was exciting for me to be able to have, you know, carte blanche and just be able to do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have a really hard time. I mean, not so much anymore now that I've done it, but five years ago trying to convince a client to paint all of their trim seafoam um i think would have been a non-starter um but for us it was like okay let's like run with these things that we're really excited about they may scare the hell out of everybody else but i think when we do it it'll Mm -hmm. be embraced um and then it'll create a backdrop and then create community and you know, this is supposed to be a gathering place for people in Oklahoma City, not just our guests, mm-hmm. our hotel guests. Um, and so seeing that is really gratifying. And the comment about Instagram, like, I mean, I will say sometimes there are people doing shoots here and it's very disruptive. Right. And that part of it I do not love. There's a process to go through to yes, do it properly. Yes, yes. Yeah. But the fact that there is a whole new respect for design and appreciation that was not here five, ten years ago, definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm relieved that, that that's happened right. and that it's embraced. Back when you started college, you probably didn't, I mean, there was probably a dream to have a place like this, but the actual reality of it, the way it has turned out, is probably yeah. far more, you know, it's exceeded your expectations, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you said there was no, you know, I mean, back yeah, in what, no. 2010, 2011, there was nothing like this year. No. So. Well, and seeing our customers as well. I mean, it's it's so cool to see just the mix of people and 
Um, I mean, the, Oklahoma City has grown so much, and mm-hmm. the appreciation for design has grown so much, and everyone's vocabulary, and even people picking up the matchbooks and appreciating the little styling, and you know, it's um, it's it's exciting. Well, yeah. yeah, I think I mean you would know obviously, but it seems like a lot of interior designers could go a whole career and never get the chance to be a lead on mm-hmm. interiors. Uh, or furnishings of a hotel project, let alone like an independent boutique project where they're not subject to brand standards. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like I said, you know, uh, catalog custom furniture orders. Um, And part of the design thesis as well was kind of like when in residential interior design, things have gotten so vanilla, Mm -hmm. like meaning much more monochrome, like, Remember the early 2000s? It was like deep hues of color, yeah. faux finishes, travertine, granite, you know, mm-hmm. lots of like kind of layer to, mm-hmm. the, to the building materials yeah. themselves. And it's gone the other way now where it's just a lot cleaner. Yeah. Lots of black and white, lots of grays. And there's a place for that for sure. But if that's what you're living in, mm-hmm. that's probably not what you want to experience as a traveler. You know, like when you're mm-hmm. traveling and having, yeah. particularly staying overnight, like living some in, in a place for one night out of yeah, yeah. 365 or maybe out of, maybe it's your only visit ever and it's the one night you spend there, you know, in a lifetime, you should feel like you're transported somewhere mm-hmm. else. And at, at least with the type of operations we want to run, the type yeah. of projects that we want to expose people to, they should be memorable because it's you know what it's a part of our brain cornerstones that like m- memories that really linger like sort of all hinge on the details. Mm-hmm. It's usually not like the big grand entrances and yeah, yeah. things that cost a lot of money that make you talk about how you feel about ex- physically experiencing a place. Mm-hmm. It's it's some of the small details, you know. There's, I just remember they had that one little, mm-hmm. you know, thing, and and so that's what we've you know really tried yeah, hard yeah, to do. Yeah. So, is there anything that like people come here and you just wish that they noticed more than they actually do? Is there something that like you've taken so much time designing and put a lot of effort into that people kind of gloss over and it might drive you mad because to a designer it really stands out to you and you're like, I love this, but no, everyone kind of misses it. Not for me. No. Yeah. Well, what's more common, I think, because there there is so much detail that right. that's bound to happen. Well, that's and, why. Yeah, that's and, why and, I asked. And with yeah. a lot of with a lot of people, they just um, well, I don't mean with a lot of people, but just people in general. Mm-hmm. Unless you have a trained eye, you really don't even know what right. you're looking at in some cases. Yeah. So it's not really offensive, or we're not like wistful about people missing, you know, small things. It's. I think what causes us, you know, more grief, you know, just on a personal level, because it's, it's our project and right, it's our yeah, names yeah, yeah. on it, is when <clears throat> people do notice something different, but it just doesn't resonate. Gotcha. And that was a hard thing to do. And we're, we've only been up in eight months, so it's not like we've been doing this very long. But, right. you know, early, early on when your first customers are coming in, and, and I remember we got, you know, a, one person who stayed in a room that's actually one of the better designed rooms um, and just of course went online with a review about it <laughs> and it was kind of going on about how the desk and the chair don't match <laughs> like, they, like they weren't they, they weren't part of the same set yeah. and how the desk was was a little small for like for for her yeah. taste or her frame or I don't know what but 
it's it's like yeah, it's a little small because it's a it's a four foot French antique writing desk. Right. Like that's kind of yeah. It's been so, shipped yeah. sort of the, halfway around the world. Sort of the point. Yeah. 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 And so and so that's probably the thing that ca- that's funny. Initially, in a way, causes the most grief is like when when people do see what you put yeah. out there and it's just not on the same wavelength. Gotcha. And so we used to take that really personally because it feels like someone's singling yeah. you out and saying like, oh, well, this decision you owned, you know, is was the wrong one because yeah. I don't like it. Now at least probably you value it because it stands out. Well, it's not, it's not so much, yeah, it, it, that's true. And it's not so much like a, aha, like, yeah. you know, this is too cool for you to understand. It, it's not, doesn't come from a place of... Um, right. Uh, like some sort of Ego. superior, yeah, superiorly yeah, yeah. positioned taste yeah. level, but what it's really made us focus more on is that. <clears throat> and there's lots of great advice out there, just in the business world in general, mm-hmm. about developing your customer and maintaining your customer. But um, it has really helped us re- reinforce the idea and focus on the fact that we're not trying to, ma- and because you'll never succeed. But our goal is to not make everyone our customer mm-hmm. and when I think a lot of new businesses open that's their mindset is right. like everyone that walks through the door we have to convert them mm-hmm. and keep them and in reality that's impossible to do anyway yeah and so what you really want to focus on is not making everyone your customer but the people who already are your customer is giving them the best experience yeah. that you can possibly deliver, connect with them on, on as many levels as possible, whether it's design or service or quality of the product, and really focus on um, that that core customer. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes we just have to, if someone doesn't like a detail or they overlook something or mm-hmm. they have a critique about, I mean, we had another lady go on and on for two paragraphs about how horrendous to her eyes the, the downstairs paint color was. <laughs> and sometimes you just have to say, you know, yeah. that's, uh, we, but it's we, about we, preference. It's just personal yeah. preference, and totally respect that. You, you know, oh your, yeah, yeah, like your your viewpoint. Um, but this just didn't resonate today, and mm-hmm. that's okay. Well, like when you guys first walked in, and everything was pink, and you're like, okay, I love pink, but <laughs> this is a little bit much, right? Like, <laughs> I it's so it. funny. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I wanted to. Make I want to keep more. this. <laughs> but, but to, to that earlier point, yeah, every decision. I think we've made together and that I think she's made on her own where you come to a yes, no, Mm -hmm. like a binary decision in design has always fallen on the side of let's, let's do the more, um, the more unique of the two. If there's two options we like and one might appeal a little more to the masses and one might be a little more design forward or unique or special or unseen in any other project around town we've kind of erred on the side of like let's push the boat out a little pushing bit pushing the envelope because yeah. it's also true that sometimes customers and guests don't know what they want or what they right. like until they see it yeah. and a lot of people walk in saying well these are my preferences but sometimes you can deliver product or mm-hmm. experiences or um, a level of service that people didn't yet know they wanted Yeah. Mm-hmm. and I think if you I mean it's already happening now but design decisions decisions <clears throat> Excuse me. That she made, uh, you know, three, two, three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. You're now seeing more and more often in design publications. Yeah, and a yeah, lot of yeah. a lot of the aesthetic is imported from from the UK and you know from from England and mm-hmm. uh, from London and certain parts of France from uh, inspiration from particular periods that were nowhere in right. Oklahoma design vocabulary. You know, three four years ago. Yeah. That now all of a sudden, you know, oh that color or 
you know, that yeah. finish on that uh, fixture, I, I'm seeing that a lot more. Or, yeah. And so talking about, you know, trying to be ahead of the curve, we, we wanted to push that as far mm-hmm. as we could within reason, but also felt a lot of leeway to do so because with a hotel, particularly, you know, one of this nature mm-hmm. where experience is everything, um, it needs to be memorable, you know, in a way. And yeah. so we would rather some of those more bold choices be the thing people remember as opposed to the other way around. Right. Well, and to your point earlier, like people don't know what they want until they see it. So I'm sure there's been times where people are kind of, I don't have the eye for it. Like I'm like, just, you know, I mean, my house is gray and white and that's it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sure if I walked in here and I see something I like, I'm like, Oh, I want this in my house and you just pick these paint colors and I'll just take it. Like, I'm sure there's been occasions where you've probably had messages from people who have just said, Oh, we really like that. We've actually done this in our own house now. Mm. Right. We've, we have gotten Mm. some messages. I mean, I, I think it's cool to see that, to hear that. Um, we want people to feel that way. I think we, um, want people to think outside of the box and be open to new ideas. And I think, during conceptualization and in design and even still as we make decisions on site um, we have to remember to listen to our own voice um, and to lean into what we're excited about Mm -hmm. and not get overwhelmed with how it will be perceived obviously we want it to be accepted um, but we want it to feel authentic as yeah. well and, and for us to be really excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if we're really excited about it, then we can get other people yeah, excited definitely. about it too. Well, I mean, just seeing what's out there, you guys have done a fantastic job of this place. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's really cool. Uh, and you know, there's places like this for me that like when I want friends to come to town, like this place like this that I want to bring them to because well, my parents, I mean, hopefully they get to travel with this new, you know, the virus gets everyone gets vaccinated and people can travel the first thing my parents said is like we're booking out we're coming out to see you because it's Mm -hmm. been i haven't seen them in like ever i'd usually see them every year but it's been a couple of years uh so i mean yeah my mum would love to sit out on the patio and have a glass Mm -hmm. of wine or have a you know some french pastry and stuff like that's you should get them to come for vaccine tourism now that it's open (laughs) now it's open to everybody everybody. even non-oklahoma residents anybody adult over 16 need to figure that out so um well, guys, I really appreciate your time. I know we're getting a little long here, and I want to be respectful of that. No, um, how can you know? How can people find you? How can they follow you? Um, and I guess if they come here, what is you know? What do you recommend that they do? I guess when they come here, is there anything that stands out? Um, if you come for breakfast, I would say a pastry of any kind. Mm-hmm. They're all good. What's your favorite right now? <laughs> uh, right now, the Queen Amon. Oh, is really good. Yeah, really um, buttery. Layery, flaky yeah. French um, pastry that is, I think, was dubbed the fattiest pastry in France. A <laughs> so, must have. Yeah, yeah must have. Yeah. <laughs> the avocado toast Lots is delicious. Um, the coffee is great. Dinner is fabulous. If you're going to come for a cocktail, the gin and jam mm-hmm. is really, really lovely. It's kind of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So my wife doesn't listen to this podcast, but I'll have to tell her because she's a big fan of gin. So (laughs) we'll have to take that one off the list. Gin features most prominently in our spirit collection. So there's a wide range there. You might have a new uh, local (laughs) now. (laughs) Local resident. Yeah. Yeah, No, I love just a cappuccino and a croissant Mm -hmm. in the morning out on the out on the front porch in particular when the weather's nice. And then I think my other favorite time or experience is after dinner, later at night. 
um, all the candles throughout the first floor get lit, the lights go way down, the music goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been, you know, strange just with restrictions on bars and restaurants and just yeah. people's behavior in general. But uh, hopefully in the not too distant future, and we've seen glimpses of it here and there, you know, past 10 p.m. where people who are vaccinated and feel comfortable around each other are bringing yeah. in, you know, small groups and those groups interact with others and it actually looks like a social, you know, a highly functional social yeah, environment yeah. again. But I think uh, the nighttime kind of uh, cocktail bar aspect to it is going to be really neat too because it's, there. you know, the bar's only five seats when yeah. it has seats. Everywhere else it's kind of private little mm-hmm. seating vignettes and so uh, it's a unique uh, kind of after hours experience yeah. for people as well. Awesome. Well, guys, again, like really appreciate your time. Um, for everyone listening, I'll post the links to the social media and the website down in the description. You can go to that. And yeah, if you haven't been here, if you don't live in Oklahoma City, come down as well with the visit. Come stay the night, have a cocktail, have one of those fatty, amazing croissants <laughs> that I'm dreaming about now. Um, and yeah, we'll catch you next episode. Cheers. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling an Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at Oklahoma HOF. Also, huge shout out to RCB Bank for jumping on board to be a sponsor. RCB Bank's loan promotion is here for a limited time. Head into any of their 40 Oklahoma locations to get as low as 1.79 APR on your next car, boat, camper, or ATV. Apply online at rcbbank.com. RCB Bank, that's my bank. Rate and finance with approved credit. Restrictions apply and member FDIC. Huge shout out to my sponsors. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll catch you next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.